Thanks, guys. <clears throat> hey, everyone. How you doing? Just feeling a little bit like spring. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, we've got memory verses in our series, Rhythms of Joy. You ready? They're, we're going to do the hard ones. Ready? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is, Be joyful always. Great. You guys are so good. So good. 100%. All right. Romans 12, 12a is, Be joyful in hope. So good. Okay. And then, see if you could do Nehemiah 10, 10b. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You guys are so good, especially that one. That was good. All right, that'll probably be in mostly blanks next week. Okay, we can probably do this. So we're doing this series, Rhythms of Joy, and um, this morning we're going to talk about rhythms of remembering. A couple weeks ago I talked about how in Colossians the Apostle Paul says, he's talking about, um, well, this is what he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you, that is, say whether or not you have a right standing with God. Right? Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. So the festival is the year cycle, the new moon is the monthly cycle, Sabbath is the week cycle, right? Sabbath day. These are all a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ, right? So what he's saying is, he's saying, these, all these things, including all these festivals, are shadows, that is, they point, they're an insubstantial thing that points forward to a perfectly substantial thing that's in Christ himself, right? Including all the festivals. And it turns out that all of the festivals, before they're about anything else, are about being festive. That is, they are events of joy, of happiness, of enjoyment. And if you read the Old Testament carefully and you add it all up, it's, it's something between 70 and 80 days of joy and feasting and festival and happiness to one day of fasting and mourning on the Day of Atonement. Because God is trying to get across to people who are naturally cynical about his goodwill for them, that he is a God who wants to give joy. His desire for you is joy. The thing that was a shadow in the festivals that is realized in Christ is that Christ has come to give and bring joy. He wants joy for you. He wants to spread joy through you. He wants people to receive joy. His great end isn't joy. His great end is that his glory would be seen. But the inevitable human result of his glory for humans that are redeemed in Christ is when you see all of the perfections of God, it's joy. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul at one point was rotting in a Roman prison and he was contemplating whether or not it was time for him to get killed or whether or not he was going to get to see the people in Philippi again. And he wrote in Philippians, he said, he said, I'm convinced of this, that is, is that, that there's more ministry for me to do with you. He said, so convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. There's a lot in that, right? He's saying that the faith or your faith is something that is meant to produce joy, and to progress or grow. That is, you're meant to grow in spiritual substance. And in your faith, you're supposed to experience joy. And his hope is that, on, he says, on account of me, I want 
your joy to overflow in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying that Christ Jesus, the one who he said in Colossians was all of the fullness, right? He says, in him, I want your joy to overflow on account of me, which means he wants to be part of them being happy in God, right? And so you can think about this, like, this isn't just for Paul. It's not just for me as a pastor. This is for everybody. Like, if, you, if the gospel is really rooted in you, that's what you think your life is for. Do you understand? You, you, can, you can simplify what your life is for with like those words, right? In Christ, you're here so that on account of you, other people's faith would produce joy and would grow and progress. And that because of you and how you interact with people, in Christ, their joy would overflow. See, that's a really good effect you could have on people. Right? Now, part of the reason for that is because, like we covered in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was talking to a group of people that had lost everything, and they were trying to rebuild a civilization from nothing, and they had found out they were doing everything wrong according to God. And at that moment, they wanted to mourn and maybe repent and maybe see if God wouldn't, would not kill them for all the bad stuff they'd done. And, but it was actually a festival day, and so Nehemiah said, wait, you're actually not supposed to cry and mourn and wail today. What you're supposed to do today is be happy. That's the command of God for today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? And the reason why that's incredibly important is because the joy of the Lord is your joy. Right? And if you won't tap into the joy of the Lord as your joy, you're not going to be reliably joyful. Almost all the other joyfuls that exist in human life, all the happinesses, they do well when they're resting lightly on something very solid. And so, like, if you want to be happy in flowers and butterflies and kittens— and babies in the pew in front of you, and all of those sorts of things. If you want to be happy in, like, somebody cuts you off, you're like, oh, look at you getting somewhere fast. You know, like, if you want to be the kind of person who's just happy, and you just kind of spread joy, and you're easily pleased, and you easily please others, and it's like you're, you're happy to be happy. That kind of happiness is, which is like 90% of the happiness affects it's, it's light and airy, and it only— it only works if it's resting on a very solid and reliable joy, which is built on the foundation of the glory and beauty of God and what you possess and know you are in him, right? But it also gets back to the question of, Paul said, I want, for your, I want your joy and I want your progress, right? And because, so the joy of the Lord is also your strength, your strength to grow and change and to receive the grace of God in a way that it has an effect on you and on others. Because listen, I know you want to be happy. Look, everybody wants to be happy. There is nobody that doesn't want to be happy. Even I want to be happy. But what you need to understand is, is that happiness is enjoyed by the strong. And by that, I don't mean that in the, inju in the injustice sense. I don't mean the strong, like, steal the labor of the, and they, like, drink expensive Chiantis. That happens. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the world is difficult, hard, painful, and chaotic. And if you are overwhelmed by that, you will be miserable. You'll be miserable all the time. Your life will constantly be overwhelming you, and you will not be happy. And in that being overwhelmed, you'll be so overwhelmed, you'll never be able to make any headway, and so you won't progress. You won't grow in grace. You won't be strengthened in virtue. And so your life will always be overwhelming 
and you won't be happy. And there will be no joy and there will be no progress without strength. But you're like, where do I get this strength from? Because I don't have it already. Great question. And the answer is in Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that is a joy that can come from knowing and believing something that isn't already forged in you. It's something that you can receive directly from God because he freely gives it. And that joy can begin to produce the joy that can produce strength, that can produce substance, which can produce more. To where people look at you and they get joy off of you and they take strength from you. Right? That's what encouragement means, right? It's Encouragement literally means to put courage into somebody. You're never going to be good at encouraging anybody until you're strong enough. You got extra courage to take some of that courage and put it in them by saying stuff that's uncomfortably positive and true about them. We were in a staff meeting talking about like how things were going at the church. I heard that. I'm scared. Um, Things were going at the church, and I had this very insightful, intelligent assistant. I don't know if you know this, but like Jill Reese, my assistant, um, did two years of Hebrew exegesis at UW in her undergrad. That's more than me, and I went to seminary, right? So, but she's, she's full of this, these kind of insights. And one time she, she said, I feel like there's a weariness among people, but I feel like it's a weariness that isn't cured with rest, which is very insightful because there are different kinds of weariness. And the weariness that comes from productivity, from work, is cured by rest. And it turns out, that's the only kind that's cured with rest. Every other kind of human weariness isn't cured by rest. In fact, rest makes the other kinds of weariness more desperate because it doesn't cure them. And then you're like, well, what will cure this? And then you start getting desperate. And when humans get desperate, two things happen. At least. There's a lot of things that happen, but they get— the people who are desperately active, <laughs> they, they do reckless things. And the people who are desperately passive get depressed. But when, when we look at the festivals and how Jesus has a program for joy, the divine program for joy has three parts, and only one of them is rest. Right? One of them is rest, because we're meant to be productive people. And when productive people work, they need to stop and rest in a certain portion. Six to one, right? And so there's, there's a rhythm for creatures, which is rest. But there's also a rhythm of resets because we're not good. And so what happens is guilt and shame and a sense of impending damnation come into the human heart and it starts eating it out from the inside. It's like a, it's like a rot in your bones. And you can kind of feel it. And sometimes you don't know what it is. Like you may not know enough spiritually to actually know what it is. Or you know it's guilt, but you don't know what you're guilty of or who, who you're guilty before. Right? Like all that stuff can be confused in the human mind. But the guilt is still there because your conscience functions some. And so what happens is, is like you know you're not right. You know there's stuff that isn't right. And you really don't know what. And you really don't know what to do about it. Or you may have sinned well enough that even in your relative morality, you still know it's pretty dang bad. And you know what it is. And you know it's bad, but you still don't know exactly who you've sinned against. But you're not, you're not right. You're not right with yourself. You're out of whack with yourself. You want to believe you're this person. You think you're supposed to be this person, but you know that you are this person. And it's tearing you to pieces. And what you need is a divine reset. 
where God comes in and he atones. He takes that away. He takes it to himself at great cost. And he allows you to become one person again on the inside. Which produces something called peace. And peace is a treatment for moral weariness, right? But then there's a third one. And that is that remembrance is for spirits. That is, when I say spirit in this context, I don't mean ethereal metaphysical thing that wisps around like, I don't know what, like a ghost. What I mean is, is that we humans are consciousnesses that are conscious through time. We know that we exist. We know that we know we exist. We know that we know that we know we exist. We want there to be a reality in the world. We have a taste for meaning and purpose. And we don't know of another creature that's like that on this planet or any others. And it makes us strange. And we, we need to know who and what we are. And without that foundational identity, humans don't stabilize well. And we can't—we're not stabilized enough to really forge an identity, especially in a world that outside of us is confusing and it's tempting, right? And so we need something to stabilize us in terms of our identity so that we can be what we're meant to be, right? Now, so you can think of these three things. And I would say, like, this would be a great thing to, like, print out and put on your mirror because you can go through and be like, what is it? How do I walk in God's joy, right? Am I not resting? Am I not accepting that I'm a creature? Am I not sleeping? Am I not eating right? Am I not, am I not in God's rhythms of blessing? Am I out of whack inside? Am I morally crossways? Is there anxiety and a lack of peace because of guilt and shame and a sense of something impending with God? Do I need a moral reset? Do I need to turn to Christ again and confess my sins and be internally, emotionally healed with the peace of God, right? Or am I, am I getting out of whack with my identity? Am I forgetting who I am? Do I, do I not know who I am in this moment? And am I torn by worldliness into two? And is that what's making me weary? Right? So when it comes to these remembrances, remembering Christ links your identity to God's joy and blessing, right? Or progress transformation. So remembering Christ links your identity to joy and progress, or as the interns wanted to say, root identity, blossom joy. Okay? So, okay, first thing about this. God knows that our identity is critical for our joy. Human beings are identity creatures. I said a few weeks back that we're we're meaning of ours, that we eat meaning, like like we need to know things mean stuff. And that's true in terms of significance. We need to know that we're significant or we're not right inside. We need to know that we have some kind of purpose or we're not right inside. We need to know we have some kind of destiny. And God, God knows that about us, right? And so what he wants to do is to, through Christ, he wants to build into us a foundational identity that is, that is based on his joy and fullness in Christ. Now, the reason I say foundational is because if you and I all have fully formed identities, they're not going to be identical. Right? There are real differences between us. 
We have different ages, different temperaments, different kind of jobs and work that we do, different family structures, different all kinds of stuff. And we're bouncing around in this world in different ways. And so we're going to be different. But, but there's a number of things that are going to be the same, like that we're created by God and for God, that Jesus died to redeem us, that we're sinful and we need the internal resets of Christ and what he can do, that we require the presence of the Spirit to keep us walking toward the character of Christ. There's, there's a whole bunch of foundational. We're, we're out of God's creative intention. We're heading towards his creative and glorious future. Like all these things are true for all of us, and they're meant to be foundational, right? And then we, our character and life and being has to be forged on top of that. And th- those will be different, right? So like you want— everybody's basement spiritually to be poured about identical, right? And you can, you can drywall out the thing a little bit different, but it's, it's, this, it's rooted in the same thing because otherwise it falls. In fact, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said all these things about what the kingdom of God is like, and he says, listen, if you listen to me and you do what I say, then your, your life is like a house that's built on rock. And if you don't, it's like building a house on sand. You can build the same houses, and one stands and the other one doesn't, right? And one of the reasons why that's important is because there's always an alternative identity, right? It's like an alternative identity. And <clears throat> are you sure that clock is right? And the alternative identity is what we call worldliness, what the New Testament calls worldliness. And that is that— um, there are going to be people, huge swaths of people, and we will be living within whole societies in which they don't—they don't—they don't let God be the found, their foundation. Right? And so when, when the, the Israelites were coming to the Promised Land, God says this in Leviticus 18. He says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not, not do the things in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. Now notice that twice he says, I am the Lord your God, which is an identity statement. He's saying, he's saying, I'm the Lord your God, and that says something about you. Right? He's saying, therefore, you're going to act and think and behave this way because I'm the Lord your God. Front end, right? And he says, you can't, you can't live on the basis of where you're from. That may or may not be right. It's certainly not right if it's Egypt, right? And where you're going, you're not going to go to a place where everybody's going to affirm what you're going to do. In fact, Christians are always going to exist in a space in which they're going to be invited into worldliness, and they're going to be invited in a way that's both alluring and threatening. You're going to be allured to move towards worldliness, towards that which God says is not your identity, and it's going to be really attractive. And you're also going to be subtly or overtly threatened. If you don't do this, you're out. You're not going to get the best. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this is the law, where God starts giving the law, he starts doing that. He starts doing it in Exodus 20. Right? This is Leviticus 18. So it's like, Leviticus, Exodus 20, all the way to the end of Exodus is law. Leviticus 1, all the way here to Leviticus 18 is law. And then it keeps going, and then it keeps going. So why does he drop it here? 
right? Does anybody know what the section right after this is about? Yell it out. Sex! That's right! That you're not supposed to do. The, the parts that you're, ones you're not supposed to do. I just want to give you a chance to yell sex in church. Okay. Um, yeah, so this actually precedes the biblical sexual commands about what you're not supposed to do sexually, right? Now think about that, right? You talk about a subject that worldliness is going to be alluring you to do what they do and subtly threatening you that you're not going to get the best if you don't do what they do, right? And in the cultures of Canaan, that was all wrapped up in their worship and agriculture and work and how you were approved and all that, right? And so it's at this point, like, God's talking about foods and, like, laws and all that kind of stuff. He's, he gets ready to talk about sex, and he goes, okay, now let's just stop for one minute. You're coming out of a land, you're going into a land, and you cannot behave like them. You can't behave like them. And let me tell you exactly what I mean by that. Right? There's always an alternative identity. So if your identity isn't rooted in Jesus, you're not going to be yourself. Okay? Just don't be— sentimentally naive. You're not going to be yourself. You're going to act like a visceral human always behaves, or you're going to conform to the people around you, or some mixture of the two. Okay, listen, when I, when people come and talk to me, and they have been not following Jesus for a while, and they're like, how do I get this thing back on the tracks? And they start telling me what they've done. It takes about one minute for me to say, okay, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And and they're like, you know, they're always like, and it's like, because it's, human beings are incredibly predictable, right? The only way you're going to find yourself is if you live above your most visceral desires, because God has laid a foundation of what it means to be a full human, so that you're not just a creature responding to all your hormones, but you're acting towards a vision of moral beauty that you're aspiring to, and only then can you become all of what you're capable of being, and you can really be something you might be able to call yourself. And that can only really happen when you've given all of yourself to Christ. Now, it's important to recognize that if, if, if we don't get this straight, then our foundational identity is always going to be unstable without Christ. If we don't have, if we don't have Jesus as this foundation, the human beings go a little haywire. And listen, I know we live in Madison, and I know that in Madison people will say that's crazy, right? You'll get like the, the normal atheist guy saying like, that's, that's just not true. There's all kinds of meanings and purposes and significances that we can attach ourselves to, to that have nothing to do with God. Right? You can love your family, and you can do important work, and you can, you can do all kinds of things where you don't need—you don't need, like, to be rooted in Christ, right? And with, with all respect, I actually think that that's dangerously naive. And I think it misunderstands what human beings actually are, right? So let me give you four quick reasons. One is, um, I think it misunderstands the root identity of what human beings are. If you take a child— from even one of their parents at a very young age, and they grow up without that parent. Most of them are never going to really completely and totally sort out what that did to them. Now, some of them in their 20s and 30s or whatever, they'll go to a counselor and they'll be like, 
the council will be like, well, what's going on? They're like, I don't know. I'm to keep sabotaging my life. I know what I'm supposed to do today, and I just do stuff I'm not planning on doing. I don't really know why. Like, and there's all kinds of stuff that's going on, and they don't even really know what it is. They can't even really formulate how to talk about it, but it's there. It's there, and it's sabotaging all kinds of things, and they can't even control it. And that's, that's, you take away one of their human parents, right? And if there is a God who we are meant to connect with, who is our divine creator, in whose image we exist, and you do not remember, and you do not order in your heart and soul and mind your relatedness and belonging to that parent, without being able to see in the scriptures and in Christ the image that you were born in, and then in Christ reborn into. It's like a boy trying to be a man without having a dad to look at. It's confusing. And it's much deeper than a simple like, well, I can just love my job and that's meaning. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's cosmically deep. It's what people like Pascal and Augustine meant when they said that everybody has a God-shaped hole in them, whether you like it or not. Right. The second is self-deception. Self of low and arbitrary expectations. What I normally see, John, Jonathan, uh, I'm sorry, not Jonathan Edwards, John Adams, our second president, once wrote, I think he was writing to Thomas Jefferson, he said, look, I've, I've known a lot of people who have said that they can be good without religion, and they're all, they've all been scoundrels. Now, that's not my experience, Right? My dad, for example, was an extraordinarily good man. And as, as men go, in terms of courtesy and commitment and hard work and all of those sorts of things, and he was not a professing believer at all. And, um, <clears throat> but I, no I noticed in his life later, right, that there were things in his life that he just, he, he let him slide. Like, there, there was no— clarion voice of the Lord saying, you have to deal with this. And so, though hundreds of people came to his funeral because he was a great man, there were things that we suffered, that he suffered. But because he didn't have the Word of God written, the example of the man Jesus Christ saying, yes, you're better than those other men but you're supposed to look like me, and I want to make you this, then every person wanting to believe that we're a good person slides into low expectations and arbitrary expectations. Now, the, the average non-believing person is going to say something that's absolutely right, which is, well, what do you think happens with religion, man? Like, people believe in God, and then they come up with, like, arbitrary rules and low expectations. They're like, well, I went to church, so I can sleep with whoever I want. And that is absolutely right. It's absolutely right. But going back to the denial of the foundation in Christ is to move backwards in time and progress, not forward. You don't go from, hey, these people are being badly religious, to there's no God, so let's do whatever's right in our own eyes. That's not the solution. That's a terrible solution, right? The, the greatest critique of religion ever in the history of the world is in the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish people, led by God, are the only people on planet Earth literally the only people in the history of the world whose scriptures basically say they're terrible. Just read, just read anything else. Just go get, go get the Babylonian myths and read about Sargon and get the stuff written by the Romans and all this. So just read everybody's history and you will not find one society 
other than the Jews that produced a document about their history where God is good and they stink. Especially in their religion. In their religious, literally in the religious documents themselves for hundreds of pages, they're like, we're terrible at religion. We're terrible. We're so bad. We, we, yes, we received the one true religion and we're terrible at it. We're so bad at it. Who writes that stuff? Right? But you see, within the Bible, God spoke through his prophets and said, that's not, you can't do that. That's not right. Right? In Isaiah, he goes, listen, if you go and you commit injustices and you come in and you sacrifice a lamb to forgive your sins so you can do whatever you want, the lamb doesn't atone for the injustice you committed. The lamb is a misuse of divine salvation. This triples your guilt. Doesn't take it away. What kind of game do you think you're playing? That's in the Bible. Like, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? Like, there's this boy— this young man, and he doesn't want to live in his father's farm. He wants to go to the big city, and he takes like half the family's wealth, and he goes and he spends it on hookers, and he's, he like loses all his money, and he loses all his friends, and he's eating like half-fermented pig slop, and he's like, I'm going to go back to my father. Maybe he'll make me like a servant or something, and that's better than this. And so he goes back to his father, and his father, instead of making him a servant, he embraces him. With, he runs out to him and embraces him in his arms and says, this is my son. And the son's like, dad, I'm not worthy. And he's like, give him a ring and give him sandals. And put a robe on him and for God's sakes, cut his hair and like, like, let's have a party and kill the fatted calf. And this is going to be great. And it's this incredibly touching story because his son was lost and now his son is found. And do you know why Jesus told that story? That deeply touching story? It says in Luke 15 to make the religious people super angry. Like it says it. He's like, because the religious people were there and they were like being judgmental, Jesus told this story. It says it right in the text. That's why the story ends with the older brother who's been like a good guy who's been following the rules and he's like super angry. He's so angry and the father's like, your brother's alive. We should go have a party. He's like, ah, you— he, my brother, you slave master, you've been working me. You've never—like, terrible attitude, right? That's, that's how the story ends, and we don't even know what happens to that guy, and that's the whole point. Because Jesus, like, ripped into unfaithful religion, right? Because the solution to unfaithful religion is reform, is repentance, is remembering your identity in Christ for your joy and progress in godliness. That's the—that's how that goes. Does that make sense? It's also like if your foundation is in God, your, your moral system is going to end up being morally, morally impotent. It can't help you when you need it most. At exactly the moment where you need it the most is when you want your moral system to be flexible in your, in your temptation, right? Like if— like, when you really, really want to have an affair is when you, you want to find a loophole and thou shall not commit adultery, right? When you really want to tell the hot gossip, right, is when you want there to be a loophole in only speak for the building up of others. And see, if you're not rooted in that foundation of the character of Christ himself and that you're to be forged in that character yourself, like at, minute, at that moment, if you've got a nice little flexible morality, it's going to get flexible, Okay, that's going to happen. And it's going to fail you, and it's able to regulate 
who you're becoming right when you need it the most. And it's going to work fine up until then. You'll be like, I got a perfectly good morality without God. I'm doing fine. I'm built on the foundation of like what I think is good, and this is so fantastic. And then right at the moment, the greatest moral gut check in your life, you're going to fail miserably. Because there's no God the size of the canopy of the universe saying, you will not! And you'll lose yourself. And then last is it's a non-normative solution. Listen, I've heard so much clap chap about like, you know, we could just do what we want and like, you know, sex is for fun and like spend your money how you want and like we should do blah, blah, blah. It's all kinds of like unrooted kinds of moral systems. Listen, if, listen, if you've got five million dollars, maybe you can make that work. But it destroys the lives of everybody else. Well, I mean, look at the elites. It destroys their lives, too. You can have five million dollars. You still can't stay married. You still can't love somebody long-term. You still can't have kids that aren't wrecked by your profligacy. Like, the, the elites are living terribly broken lives, and they have every possible resource. They have all the money. They have the best health care. They have all the nannies. They have everything, and they cannot make that moral nonsense work to save their lives. Do you know how long a marriage lasts in Hollywood? Don't bet on over five years. Not in Vegas. The morality of being unrooted is what is producing things like now 77.4% fatherlessness in one group in America. It's not going to fix downtown Philly. Listen, this kind of like, well, we don't want to be too morally focused in like God's commands and stuff. Look, it's not going to help people who need help. It's ruining their lives. It's destroying the lives of millions of people. It's not going to fix downtown Mumbai. 14 million people living in slums. It's not going to fix any of that. It's going to make it worse, exponentially worse. And to believe that, like, you can do it without the foundation of our being that is meant to be set in the image of God in Christ is creating exponential misery for the mass of humanity. Even if you can sip lattes somewhere in your atheism or irreligion or disgust against God and do fine for now because your income is okay and you've got good health care. We are meant to be rooted and to find joy in something that's unshakable, outside of circumstances, that makes us easily pleased and easily pleasing, able to embrace others and sacrifice generously. And you need something deep and strong and solid for that. And I don't, I don't think there is another thing besides the risen, glorious Christ. And so— what we need to recognize is that also that God knows that our identity needs the foundation if our character is going to be forged, right? And it's very easy to think about the—I'm going to be real quick with this. It's really easy to think in the Old Testament that, the, that God takes the people out of Egypt, and then they start a new chapter. And the new chapter is they're in Sinai, and God gives the law on Mount Sinai, and the people accept it, right, in Exodus 19. And they say, we're going to live according to this. And he says, okay, now I'm going to give you a land. And so that the covenant is— you're going to be my people. I'm going to give you a law, and then you're going to live in the land. And if you obey the law, then I will bless you in that land, and it'll be a beautiful thing. And that's partly true. But one of the things that it doesn't take into account is that in almost every major ceremony of remembrance, God gives a different reason for why they would obey him and be his people. 
So in Exodus 12, 7, he says, Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, do it because I gave you the law and the law is good. He says, this whole thing starts with me being the one who brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. I freed you. I gave you liberty. I gave you a chance. I gave you a future. I gave you a hope. Right? Exodus 12, 24 to 27. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you. That is, remember it for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony, right? Do the action of remembrance. Why? And when your children asks you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Exodus 13, 11. And when the Lord will bring you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your forefathers that he shall give it to you, you shall set apart for yourself the first thing that opens any womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, then you must break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when— In time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. From the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn man and the firstborn among the animals. And therefore I sacrificed the Lord, all the males that first opened the womb but all the firstborn sons I redeem. And it shall be a mark on your hands in the front between your eyes. For by the strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Even the Sabbath commanded, Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the rest, day of rest once a week. As the Lord your God has commanded you, on it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter or your manservant or your maidservant, nor your ox or your donkey or any animal nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You see, all through the Bible, there is this thing called the gospel, right? Which is the good news, which is the idea that God freely gives what we need. He promises he'll give it, and then he does it, and he rescues us. And because he rescues us, we can be related to him, we can know him, we can belong to him, and we can trust him. Because you see, the point here is not just— that because God brought you out of Egypt a thousand years ago, that you still do this now because you're making up for the fact that of all that strength and all that expense and all that work God did. No, that's not it. The idea—this is the idea. The God who saved you out of slavery, you can trust. That's the idea. That you should never forget that. You can never forget that. Now, when you were lost and you were enslaved and nothing could save you, there was no other way— 
and you cried out with no hope. And God promised a way and made a way and created the way and accomplished the way and gave you the way and took you out of slavery and put you in a home and gave you a family and redeemed you from the pit and wiped away your damnation and gave you a forever inheritance and filled you with the Holy Spirit and poured out his love in Christ, that that God who did that in the past for you can be trusted every moment the rest of your life. There is nothing else that can be trusted like that. But you have to remember it. You can't forget it. You can't forget it for one second. You've got to remember. And, you, and you've got to do rituals to remember because, man, we are forgetful creatures. That's not what we think we are. And, and so you've got to remember, right? And, and so what God is telling the Israelites is, yes, I gave you a law. And you know why you can do this law? Not because if you do it, I'll bless you. That's not the reason. The reason you can do this law is because I saved you out of Egypt. And I care enough about you, and I love you enough to bring you out of slavery. Do you think that I would just give you a new one? Is that what you think? I mean, listen, listen to me. Those of you who are upset about the ways of Jesus, who are upset about the generosity involved in the way of Jesus, and the forgiveness, and you have to forgive others. That's hard. And you have to be monogamous and loving towards a spouse, or you have to be celibate in the difficulties of singleness, and that you have to love others. You have to love your enemy, even when they do wrong to you. Listen, if you, are you upset about that? Do you feel like it's a slavery? And what God is saying in the Exodus, what he's saying in Christ, he's saying, do you think, do you think I would save you out of slavery just to put you in another one? No, I saved you out of slavery for liberty, for life, for joy, for growth, for progress, for strength. That's why I saved you. When I gave you these commands, these things, these callings, it's not slavery. It's liberty. It's the strength of maturity and responsibility coming together with the open space of liberty so that goodness can flourish. It's not slavery. You're confused. It's love, and it will produce joy. Right? And what God tells his people then, and what I, he tells them now, too, is that, like, you got to do stuff to remember. We are, we are incredibly forgetful creatures. In the Bible, there is this tension that's very difficult for people to deal with if they read the Bible all the way through, and they really try to put it together. And it is that it is whether, like, can you lose your salvation? Like, can you belong to God and then not belong to God? And, and the reason why that's difficult is because the Bible says, if you belong to God, you cannot not belong to God. Like, that Jesus is a perfect shepherd, and nobody steals out of his hands the lambs that belong to him, and that um, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in Romans 8, neither height nor depth, or angels or demons, or anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And there's all this stuff in the Bible about assurance, about belonging to God. And the, and, the, and the point of that is that God will carry you through. Like, you will never fail for lack of resources. Like, God is with you, right? And you need that encouragement or you'll get discouraged. You'll be like, there's no way I can do this. You can do it. You can overcome. You can endure because God is with you. You're his, right? And then on the other side, it'll say things like, people are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, wasn't I fantastic? I did all these miracles in your name. I did all this stuff. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You're not mine, right? Do you know that that passage is literally the verses right before the building your house on a rock versus the sand? Those are right next to each other. 
That's not a coincidence. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, test yourself and be sure that you're really in the faith. In Colossians, it says, all these things are given to you in Christ if you hold firm, standing unmoved in the faith held out to you. And there's all these conditional statements. In, in Revelation, there's seven letters, and in every letter it says, to the one who overcomes, I will give. Right? And so it, it may be that neither of those sets of statements are meant to be philosophical statements. It may be that they're both meant to be pastoral statements. They're both meant to be psychological statements. To the question, am I going to have enough to make it? I feel weak. I feel like I'm not going to make it. I feel like I'm a problem person. I don't think God will continue to love me. He'll save me, but then he'll grow increasingly disappointed with me like everybody in my life, and he will ultimately drop me. There has to be an end to the dignity of this love. The answer is no, there isn't. God is a shepherd, and he, he picks up the sheep, and he wants them. And he holds them, and he protects them. And if something attacks them, he cleaves its head off. He is ferocious in his protection of his lambs, and he carries them to the end. And neither angels, nor demons, nor heights, nor death, or anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, period. And you don't have to worry. You, you can make it. And yet at the same time, there are the people who are like, man, I'm in, and like, it's cool, and I can, and they start, and like, I don't have to be careful, and like, I'm just going to cruise through. And Jesus is like, that is not the case. That is not the case. Like, there are all kinds of dangers all around you, and there's stuff that wants to get a hold of you, and there's sin still residing in your heart, and there's work to be done in your character, and there are all kinds of things that are trying to stand in your way and push you off the path. And like, You've got to make it to the end, to the one who overcomes. I will give all these things, and you have them all if you don't lose faith. If you do stand firm, you've got to make it. So you've got to, you've got to fight, man. You've got to be vigilant. And here's the problem. In the Bible, what happens to the people of Israel is not that they break the cycles first, and not that they break the resets first. The thing that the thing where they lose their way is they forget who they are. They forget that they belong to the Lord. They forget that. And once they do, everything goes haywire. It's bad. And so what God tells them is he says, listen, you need, you need to do stuff in your life that's very practical, that's very tactile, that's very repetitive, that's scheduled, that is focused on memory remembering who you are. In the Old Testament, they had, they had these different festivals, right? Like Passover and unleavened bread and booths and atonement and all these kinds of things. And, and in the New Testament, there are additional things. It's not like Jesus and then like, you know, go to the movies. You know, it's like, he's like, no, you, you belong to Jesus and you have the Spirit. Now get together and pray with each other and worship together and exhort one another and listen to preaching about the Bible and read the Scriptures publicly. And Eat in each other's homes, and parents, teach your kids about Jesus, and raise them up, and, and keep reminding them who they are so that their identity in Christ is built into all their other sub-identities. And if we do these together repetitively, like, it'll help us remember who we are. And that human tendency to forget who we are in our fleshliness and in the worldliness, because remember, we, we live in a world that is constantly alluring and threatening us to follow the ways of the world. And although we should be comforted by the fact 
that we will never run out of resources if we are in the hands of Christ. If we look to him for the resources we need, they will be there. His demand that we be just as focused on what we must do to endure is just as central. And one of the questions you can ask yourself is, what does faith look like after you believe in Jesus? What does continued faith look like? And it looks like remembering. It looks like staying in the place where you know who you are in Christ and then acting like it. And so what faith looks like is doing whatever needs to be done to remember at every moment, in every place, in every case, increasingly. Because if, if, we, do, if we do that, then we will be connected to God in such a way that there will be joy. And in Christ, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we'll be strong enough to be joyful. And we'll be strong enough to progress and grow in godliness and in substance. And when that happens, we will be able to encourage others and give joy to others and be strong enough that we can carry some of the weight of others. And the, the joy that is God's intention and the glory of seeing God for who he really is will rise among us. It'll, it'll spread among us and it'll bless people. So as we get ready to take communion, um, if you're a Christian, this is an ordinance, meaning Jesus ordered us to do it. Like, you need to take communion. Because it has nothing to do with how well you did this last month or this last week, spiritually or morally. It has to do with whether or not you're willing to remember that all of your salvation rests on the gracious act of God on your behalf. It's a cycle. You made it through another month. Here we are, remembering Jesus again. It's a reset. You didn't have a great month. <laughs> and you should acknowledge the ways in which it wasn't great, and in which, like, you need to believe in Jesus in certain areas so that you can act like Jesus in certain ways. And it's also a remembrance that orders your identity. Who do you belong to? Who redeemed you? And if he carried you out of that slavery by his grace, do you really think what he's calling you to do today is a, is a, is a slavery? Or do you actually, are you willing to believe that it's actually the real liberty that a human image-bearing being can have if they know Christ and are, and are found in him? Let's pray. Father, as we take these elements um, as marks and testimonies of a belief, I pray that anybody who doesn't believe in you yet would feel comfortable just letting them pass and dealing in their own hearts and minds with whether or not they need to make the decisive step of believing. I pray that you draw them to believe and to do the ritual of remembering that belief, which is baptism, soon. And I pray for those of us who have come to you and who, who know you and know what this means. I pray that you'd remind us and deepen in us, remembering who we are in you. For joy and for strength in us.